Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Logue. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Logue is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, grab a Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, and in case you use one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 2. In case you weren't with us last week, we have started a new sermon series going through the book of Genesis, where we are finding answers to the foundational existential questions about this universe and our role in it, about who God is and who we are. And this morning, as we continue into chapter 2, we're going to get a more complete picture of, of God's purpose for human beings as we read a zoomed-in account of the creation and commission of mankind. And so we're in Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to pick up beginning in verse 4. It says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, and the day that the Lord made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And so last week we read the story of creation, and we saw that God brought the universe into existence and shaped it into a perfect environment for, for humans to live and flourish in relationship with him as his image bearers. And as we pick up again here in verse 4, Moses zooms in to give us a more close-up picture of what that creation was like, and particularly as it pertains uh, to his creating human beings. He writes, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And the expression, these are the generations, is a literary device that provides structure throughout the entire book. Right, so uh, as we go through Genesis, we're going to come across that phrase 11 times. And each time, it's indicating that we've come to a new section of the story. And so these words mark a new development in, in the plot line. And so from here to the first part of chapter 6, we're going to see the story of what happened after God's work of creation. But we begin, as we just read, with a brief flashback to God's creation of mankind. And, and Moses sets the scene by telling us that this is before, or this is referring to a time when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. And, and this, these two things are referring to various forms of plant life that require cultivation or farming. And so the reason uh, these things are like different kinds of grain, for instance. Uh, the reason these things were not in place yet is because God had not caused it to rain yet, and because, Moses says, there was no man to, to cultivate the, the ground. Uh, Moses notes there was a mist going up from under the ground that would water the land. And then 
what we read about or what we read about last week on day six of creation happens as the Lord creates a man. Now in verse seven, we get more details about this than what we saw uh, back in chapter one. It says that the Lord takes some dust from the earth and he uses it to form a man. And then he breathes into him and the man becomes a living being. And so we mentioned last week the difference between God's activity over the rest of creation and the more personal activity of God in creating human beings. And we see that even more here uh, in, in our passage this morning. All right? But previously, God has just commanded things to exist. All right? I, want, I want light, I want dry land, I want animals. But, but here, the Lord takes dust and he works with it like a potter fashioning clay. And then he provides the man with the breath of life, of life which I take to mean that he caused uh, the man to come alive both physically and spiritually in a way that is distinct from the other animals that, that the Lord has created. And so Moses gives us more details here about the creation of mankind, and he's going to give us further explanation about the purpose of humans as we pick up again in verse 8. It says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon, and is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So as we pick up again in verse 8, the Lord plants a garden in an area of land known as Eden. And he places uh, the man in this garden, which is located somewhere in the east. And so he takes uh, the man and he places him in this garden, which indicates that the garden is where he belongs. This is where he is supposed to be. And in verse 9, the Lord causes all kinds of trees to grow in this garden in the very same way that he caused them to grow over the rest of creation that we read about uh, last week. And then in verses uh, 10 and through 14, uh, we see that there was a river that comes out of Eden and watered the garden. And then from there, that river divided into four smaller rivers that went out to different locations. You see the, the Pishon around the land of Havilah, the Gihon around the land of Cush, the Tigris east of Assyria, and then also the Euphrates. I don't think it will surprise you to hear that we don't really know where this was. Uh, there is no area on earth, at least that we are aware of, that matches this description. And so there was either a massive change in the terrain at some point, like something that you might expect through the flood, or uh, the terrain has just, the geography has slowly changed over time. And interestingly, I think we see that even here. Uh, if you look, Moses describes the first two rivers in the past tense. Right? They flowed 
as at one time. And then the last two are described in the present tense. They continue to be. And so even in Moses' day, there seems to be a, a distinction between the way things had been at one time and the way things currently were. But wherever the Garden of Eden was, the point of the text is that it is a beautiful and a bountiful land. There are all kinds of trees for food, and, and there is fresh water, and there are precious stones and metals. And, and there's two trees in particular that are identified, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which we're going to talk about more next week. And so in verse 15, the Lord places the man in the garden so that he can work it and keep it. And in context, these, these words indicate that as wonderful as this garden is, the man needs to cultivate and care for it in order to maximize its full potential and possibly to expand its boundaries to eventually fill the whole earth. And before we move on, I think it's, it's worth quickly acknowledging the fact that this shows us that work is good. Work is, is an honorable thing, right? Sometimes we wish that we didn't have to work. And we think of, of work as a result of the fall, but that's not actually the case. It's, we need to see that work was part of God's original design from the beginning, right? Adam was not just walking around paradise with nothing to do, right? The Lord gave him a job. And as we keep saying, our, our, our work now is different from, from the way it would have been experienced originally, which we're going to talk about more next week. But work in of itself is a good thing. We were created to be productive and to contribute to society. And so the Lord places the man in the garden to work it. And in verse 16, he tells them that he can eat all he wants from any tree that he wants, except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And he warns that if he eats from that tree, he will surely die. And so the Lord has created a man and given him a job to do, but now the Lord's going to provide him with an indispensable resource to help him accomplish his task, as we pick up again in verse 18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord, caused, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of the ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so picking up in verse 18, there is a significant shift that takes place. So far, we've seen that everything in creation has been good. And then last week, we saw that the whole creation collectively was deemed by God as being very good. But here, the Lord declares that something is not good. And that is that it's not good for the man to be alone. 
In other words, it's not going to be possible for Adam to accomplish the task that the Lord has given him by himself. And so the Lord determines to make a helper that will be fit for him. And that word helper communicates someone that will match him and and provide needed support. And so as we read last week, God created all of the animals that are on the earth and in the sea and in the air. And so one by one, he brings them all to the man in order to see what he will call them. Right? Naming is, is an act of authority. And since the man is the image bearer of God who has dominion over the earth, it's his responsibility to name all of the animals. But as he does this, it's obvious that none of these animals are a helper that is suitable for him. And for the first time, the man is called Adam here. And so the Lord, in response to this, causes Adam to go into a deep sleep, much like using anesthesia for a procedure today. And as he sleeps, the Lord removes one of his ribs and uses it to fashion another person who is very similar to Adam, and yet who is also significantly different. And the Lord presents this final creation to Adam, And instantly he recognizes that this is someone who is uniquely suited for him. The rhinoceros, no. The giraffe, no. The aardvark, certainly not. But this, this, when the Lord brings the woman to him and he says, now we're talking. This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And so he names this other person woman because she was taken out of a man. There's a nice word play there that actually comes across well in English also. And so then in verse 24 we read, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so as, as a boy grows up to be a man, he leaves his, his natural family to establish a new family unit with his wife. They have offspring, and the cycle continues, and this is how the earth is eventually to be filled with, with image bearers of, of God. And so right here, I think it's important for us to underscore a couple of points that are built into God's created design as it is given here. And so first of all, we see the complementary design of husbands and wives. We talked about this when we discussed marriage in 1 Peter not too long ago. Uh, but it's worth uh, mentioning here that marriage has been designed by God so that husbands have the primary responsibility for leadership in the home, and wives are designed to support and help him as he leads the family. So I think there's a, a natural part of us that rebels against authority structures, and certainly there are more than enough bad marriages out there to put a, a bad taste in our mouth. Uh, as as it goes to to gender roles and things like that. But it doesn't change the fact that God has called husbands to bear the primary responsibility for the physical and spiritual well-being of their families, and he holds them responsible for that. And so uh, sometimes people ask, well, how do you know that? And I think that's a good question that's worth exploring. And what we have here in this passage are foundational creational realities that the rest of the Bible then builds upon to more explicitly explain uh, the relationship between husbands and wives. And perhaps it's important for us to clarify that as well. We're not talking about men and women. We're talking about husbands and wives. A man in general does not have authority over a woman in general. A husband has authority over his wife. So clarify that. 
But what we see here in this passage is that the Lord makes Adam first. And the New Testament takes that as a signal that that the Lord is placing primary responsibility for leadership, much like a firstborn son would in the ancient world. Obviously, the Lord knows that he's going to create the woman also, but he creates them separately. And and that order of creation indicates uh, a difference in roles and responsibilities. Secondly, Adam names all of the animals, and he also names the woman, which I already mentioned is an act of authority. Someone with authority gives a name uh, to something else. God gives the man the task of tending and keeping the garden, and he creates the woman to help him. And he also gives the man the warning about eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which makes him responsible for that knowledge, and that's going to be at the heart of what happens next week. And so in chapter 1, we saw that God created mankind, both male and female, in his image. And that mankind, both male and female, are responsible for exercising dominion over the rest of creation. But the way they do that is different. They complement each other. Of course, it's increasingly taboo to say this in our society. But if you spend any amount of time in the real world, then the truth of it is undeniable. There are very real physical, psychological, and social differences between men and women. They look different, they operate differently, they can do different things, and and those differences are not simply biological accidents. God made them that way intentionally, and those differences point to different purposes uh, according to his design. So husbands are given primary responsibility for leadership in the home. That leadership should be loving, even self-sacrificing, but it is a real authority. And so we want to be clear that men and women are both created in God's image. They both have value and dignity. They are equal, but they are not equivalent, if that makes more sense. And things work best when we follow God's design. And secondly, we also need to see God's design for sexuality and gender. God created mankind male and female, and he designed them so that one man and one woman join themselves together in the context of marriage. And so when it comes to violations of this design, whether it's homosexuality or transgenderism or polygamy, living together outside of marriage, that there are all sorts of activities and behaviors that, that go contrary to the way that God has designed the world to work. And so um, this is uh, contrary to God's design and ultimately uh, does not lead to satisfaction and fulfillment. So having said that, I think we also want to recognize that, as we have already mentioned multiple times in the last few weeks, things today are very different from the way they were in Genesis 1 and 2. Sin has distorted everything about this world, and so while God has designed the world to work in certain ways, sin has distorted every aspect of creation so that things don't work exactly the way they were intended to. And in the midst of that, there are many people who experience strong emotional and relational desires in ways that are contrary to God's created order. And I think we need to be sensitive to that reality. We need to to, to acknowledge the very real, genuine confusion that that those uh, emotions and those desires can create. We don't ever want to be rude or unkind towards someone, but at the same time, we cannot afford to not lovingly emphasize the fact that any activity outside of God's design will always, 
only lead to destruction in the end. And no matter how it may seem in the moment, uh, going contrary to God's design will never lead to flourishing in the long run. And so having said that, Moses ends the chapter in verse 25 by telling us that the man and his wife were naked and not ashamed. And that points to a state of of moral innocence that does not require any sense of self-consciousness or shame, and it sets a very ominous tone for what's going to happen when we come back again next week. And so in our passage this morning, Moses zooms in on the process of creation, specifically of human beings. And in combination with chapter 1 last week, we see that we were created to fill the earth with living representations of God's goodness and his glory. Genesis 1 tells us how we got here. Genesis 2 tells us why we got here. And then next week, Genesis 3 is going to tell us how all of this goes wrong. But for today, we should understand that we were created to know God and to fill the earth with living representations and reflections of his glory and goodness. And as we think about this, I think it's helpful for us to see, step back, and see that all of creation, this universe, was, was designed as a cosmic temple for the worship of the Lord. So I don't necessarily think that we would pick up on this just by reading Genesis, but as I mentioned last week, we're not trying to just read Genesis. We're trying to read Genesis in light of the bigger picture of the people of Israel, And so we need to ask ourselves, why are these things important for them to know? And and we have to keep in mind that the Israelites did not receive Genesis on a blank slate. Moses doesn't show up in Egypt with a, a very interesting story for them to read. They're receiving Genesis as a people who have largely already experienced the events that we find in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so as they receive Genesis and read about the Garden of Eden, they are seeing parallels with their own experience that that is causing them to say, oh, this was the original temple for for the worship of God. And what happens in this temple, which we're going to talk about next week, is what makes our temple necessary and and the things that we have to do now. And so if this is confusing to you, then, then it may be helpful for you to pick up on the fact that these first three chapters of Genesis are full of references and allusions to the tabernacle and then ultimately to the temple. And so first of all, we see just the structure of creation. I think a lot of times in our minds, we think of the Garden of Eden as the sum total of creation. But that's actually not true. You have the entire earth, and then you have the land of Eden in particular, and then most specifically, you have the garden in Eden, which we'll see next week is where God met with people. And in the same way with the tabernacle and then ultimately with the temple, you would have the outer court and then you would have the holy place and then the very center you had the most holy place, the holy of holies, where God met with the high priest. And beyond that, there are all kinds of little details that creation parallels with the temple. The substances of gold and bdellium and onyx that we read about all have significant parts to play in, in the decoration and the contents of the temple, right? The lampstand in the Holy of Holies looks like a tree with its seven branches, and it, it provides lights in the darkness, just like the sun, the moon, and the stars. 
God's instructions to Adam to work and keep the garden are actually the very same words that are used to describe the tasks of the Levites in the temple and the the responsibilities that they had. The entrances of the garden and the temple are both described as in the east. And, And we could go on and on, but if you take time to study it, you will find dozens of parallels between the original creation and the tabernacle and the temple. And and what it shows us is that this world was created for us to worship God. That is what this whole thing is about. And so the Westminster Confession of Faith famously states that the chief end of man, the the purpose for which we were created, is is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And in our passage in Genesis 2, we see that God originally provided everything that we needed in order to do that. Of course, uh, it's important to understand that this is our purpose because that explains how everything goes wrong in the world, which again, we're going to talk about next week. And it's also the key to understanding the goal of redemption now, as God is redeeming his people through Jesus. Because as we fast forward thousands of years... Much has changed, but God's original mandate stands. Of course, mankind has made a lot of progress in exercising dominion over the earth, perhaps sometimes to a fault, but oftentimes we have not done as well with the spiritual aspect of filling the earth with living reflections of God's glory. And that's because in our sin, we rebel against God and we pursue our own glory instead. And yet... The good news is that God will not allow us to derail his creation purposes. And so just as one example, in the midst of great chaos and suffering, the prophet Habakkuk looked forward to a day when when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is still going to happen, even though we have messed it up. And this is ultimately possible because in his mercy and grace— God has made a way for us to be forgiven and restored to him through faith in what Jesus has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection. And now, we as the church are called to make disciples of Jesus from all nations so that one day there will be people, there will be a new heaven and a new earth that is full of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue who do reflect God's glory And goodness. And in Revelation chapter 21, as human history comes to a close, the Apostle John hears a voice coming from heaven, and it says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Church, you see, this is God's intent at creation, and it is still his intention for redemption. And so this morning, may we play our roles as God's redeemed image bearers as we seek to fill the earth with living reflections of God's goodness and glory. Let's pray together. Father, as we have read your word this morning, uh, we see that we were created to know you and to worship you in your goodness and glory. Lord, you richly provided everything that was needed for that to happen. And Lord, as we think about that, we would have to confess that so often we forget that. We, we forget that this world exists for you. Or we get caught up in, in living for what we want, 
We get distracted by all the alternatives that this world offers us. We get frustrated by the challenges that we face. And we forget that this really is all about you. And yet, despite our sin, you have made salvation available to us through Jesus so that eventually your design for creation will be established. Lord, you are so good. We thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercy and your love. And we pray that as we've heard your word this morning, that that we would see the, the design that you have given us for our lives and that we would embrace that wholeheartedly for your glory and for the good of all people. Help us respond now according to your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.